This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, we've talked about Nancy Drew. Yes. Super sleuth. Mm -hmm. She solves crimes. But today we're going to take on the flip side. The people who commit crimes. Yes. Usually Nancy was always tracking down some bad man, but I find myself kind of drawn to cases where the criminal is a female because it so upends any um, traditional ideas about femaleness and femininity that we might have in mind. Yeah, it seems like women who commit heinous crimes, such as the women involved in the Manson family murders, get a lot of media attention because, like you said, it challenges this kind of cultural idea of um, the way women should act. How could they commit such a masculine, violent crime? Yeah, the fact that the Manson family members have been in the news lately is what um, kind of inspired this podcast. Squeaky From, who was jailed because she attempted to assassinate President Ford, was recently released from jail. And then Susan Atkins, who was involved with the infamous Sharon Tate murders, she recently died in prison, um, and in the months leading up to her death, she was always in the news because she was trying to get out of jail um, because she had brain cancer. She wanted a compassionate release. She wanted to go home and die. But the fact that she'd been involved in these murders years before, they said, no, you were involved with this. You're going to pay. Mm-hmm. And I just I was wondering whether we hear more about these ladies because they're exceptions to the rule or if they're just the ones who make the headlines. Were they examples of a larger problem of women committing crimes, or are they fascinating because they are the exception to the rule? Is there a gender gap in crime? Is there a gender gap in crime? Well, Molly, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, there is a difference in the types of crimes that men and women commit in the United States. Um, For instance, about 2.1 million violent crime offenders in the U.S., a lot, are women, but... That's only 14% of all of the violent crime offenders who are arrested in the U.S. And a majority of the crime, those violent crimes that women commit are simple assaults. And those crimes are a little bit different than the ones males commit. Females are more likely to attack 
or kill another female. Mm -hmm. And they are also usually involved in a case with a woman or a man that they know, an intimate partner, a child. They're, they're not killing indiscriminate strangers the way that men sometimes do. Yeah, and two-thirds of the crimes that women are arrested for are usually property crimes or drug-related charges. Right, and by property crimes, we mean things like fraud, embezzlement, forgery, and going down to just even simple things like shoplifting, um, check fraud. That, that I don't want to imply that some crimes are just simpler than others. Yeah, but they are, you know, if you think about like mass murder versus forging a check, there does seem to be a little bit the the moral spectrum. There does seem to be a little bit of a difference. But is a crime a crime? That's what we're going to discuss today. Yeah. And um and also the war on drugs has um caused a spike in the number in the rate of female incarceration um because a lot more women are being arrested not so much for, you know, kingpin charges of pushing a lot of cocaine across state lines and things like that. It's more women who are selling dime bags on the corner. Like on weeds? Like on weeds. Suburban moms selling pot? Well, she, yeah, she's also more of the exception. But all of this adds up to the fact that over the past 10 years, the rate of female incarceration has grown nearly twice as fast as male incarceration and this stat comes from Women's Prison Association. Uh, the female prison population grew by 832% from 1977 to 2007. At the same time, the male incarceration rate and prison population has risen too, but um, compared to that 832%, uh, the male prison population grew about half that in the same period. So there has been an acceleration among female female crime committing, it seems like. Additionally, big spikes in female female juvenile rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's take a look at who these women are. First of all, you mentioned the war on drugs, that women are coming in on drug-related charges. A good deal of them are also on drugs or under the influence of a substance themselves. Uh, nearly one in three women serving time in state prison said they committed the offense that, they, that brought them to prison in order to get more drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, also, let's take a look at the demographic breakdown of these ladies. Yeah, I think uh, according to Bureau of Justice Statistics, about 60% of women on probation are white. But Molly, we found that in the prisons, there it's a different story. Right. They're more likely to be minority women, black, Hispanic, and other races, leading some to say, just with the males, the same accusation that minorities are disproportionately represented in prison populations. I was also surprised that nearly a quarter of federal prison inmates who are women are at least 45, year old, five, 45 years old. And that also brings up the point of uh, the children, um, because a lot of these women who are arrested have kids at the time that they're arrested. And about 5% of women who are arrested are pregnant at the time that they are brought to jail. Right. And that brings up the issue of incarcerated mothers and where the children go, because while the men come in having children, the women are more likely to have come in being the sole caregiver for the child, which is going to bring us into motives and why women commit crimes in the first place. Yeah, there are four major theories about why women commit crime, because this does go back to the the fact that we're even talking about why women would commit crime kind of goes back to an antiquated idea of women being the more moral sex Mm -hmm. and a fairer sex. Who could who what women could deprive another of a life would have the strength to even do so. In fact, in the early days when a female committed a crime, it was just considered an abnormality, nothing worth studying. In the 19th century, one, uh, one guy took the skulls of female criminals home and decided that the reason they committed crimes was because they had abnormal cranium sizes. His other theories included excessive body hair and sexual deviance. 
Like these women just weren't even worth studying because they were so outside the norm of being female. Yeah, but now um, the the ideas about that have changed somewhat. Um, like I a said, a lot, a lot, yeah, and and thankfully I would say, um, like we said, there are four major theories about why women create crime, and um, the first two are kind of similar. They're kind of hard to tell apart, but they're the masculinity theory and the opportunity theory. Right. The masculinity theory links these spikes in criminal behavior to the changes in attitudes that the feminist movement brought about. Yeah. Didn't uh, didn't some of the media coin that the dark side of empowerment or something like that? Apparently, by telling women that they are just as good as men, they felt empowered enough to start stabbing men. Yeah. Odd. But that's that's sociology for you. It's a theory. (laughs) Yeah, it's a theory. And then the opportunity theory is kind of the same in that it's saying that the more um, opportunities that are open to women, the more they'll take advantage of it. Like if, you you know, you, you put a woman in charge of finances at a firm and she will be more likely to embezzle, I guess, kind of like something like that. Yeah, they're not saying that, you know, while you may have thought that women were so moral, they actually aren't any more moral. They just never had the opportunity to take money or to um, be a criminal, essentially. And then there is the economic marginalization theory, which I think kind of has some merit because it's saying that it's, it's also called the gender inequality theory. And basically they're saying that since women um, are more economically disadvantaged than men, we are more likely that pushes us to commit crimes. Because if you think about, you know, the property crimes that we were talking about that account for about a third of uh, women's incarceration, a lot of that is things like uh, petty theft and check forgery. Right. They're saying that, yes, women had more opportunities to get into the workplace, but when they did, they found the other gender gap, the gender gap in wages, in whether their work was rewarded. And so as a result of not being able to make ends meet, even in this time of um, improved economic conditions, they will act out because of their poor pay to address the wrong, provide for a family, as so many working females are trying to do. Right. They're single heads of households. Um, and then finally, we come down to the chivalry theory. And this is basically the idea that historically there have just been lower rates of um, female offenses because the criminal justice system treated them more leniently because they were women. Right. Essentially, women were always committing crimes, but they weren't necessarily going to jail for them or getting in trouble at all. Yeah, and there was one statistic um, from the Bureau of Justice Statistics um, that found that in 1997, women were more likely to get a lighter sentence than men for the same crime. So there has been a question of whether or not the criminal justice system treats still treats women differently than men, simply for the fact of being women. And I think that's the discussion we're going to head into next. Um, when a woman commits a crime, should they be treated any differently than a man. I mean, objectively, as a woman, you want to say, no, you know, we want to be treated the same in everything else. Let's be treated the same when it comes to crime. But the background of these criminals leads some to believe that that maybe there is a difference. Right. Uh, research that has been done on gender and crime has found that uh, the social background of male and female criminals is generally the same. Across the board, um, male or female criminals usually come from low socioeconomic backgrounds. They have uh, low education rates and they are disproportionately minority, which this kind of reminds me of what we were talking about in the dating violence podcast, where the question of how to um, prevent people from becoming abusers, you really have to start on a community level. Mm-hmm. But the real differences in terms of history came when it, like you just mentioned, abuse, physical and sexual abuse. 
the women in prisons had experienced far higher rates of physical and sexual abuse than their male counterparts. Um, according to Women's Studies Professor Maida Chesney Lind, and it's been uh, reported a few places, 43% of women surveyed reported that they had been abused at least once before coming to prison. With men, it's 12.2%. Yeah, and with uh, 69% of those women who report sexual or physical abuse say that it happened prior to the age of 18. So this is something going pretty far back into into childhood, a history of abuse that women are dealing with. And even with men who reported being abused at some point, the pattern would stop as they grew older because a lot of these men would um, turn from becoming being the victim to being the abuser. Right. Whereas with women, they were abused both as children and as young women. And then you can follow sort of a logical train of progression. The research indicates that women who are convicted of murder or manslaughter were killing husbands or boyfriends who had repeatedly or violently abused them. Mm -hmm. So not only do they have a background of abuse, but then when they fell into abuse as they were older, they're trying to address the situation and it ends up causing a crime. Yeah. But back to this question of how the criminal justice system deals with men and women differently, I thought that it um, was interesting, Molly. This was uh, also from the paper by um, Emeta Chesney Lind from University of Hawaii. Uh, she found that the number of women in prisons really spiked starting in the 80s, and the criminal justice system didn't know what to do with all of these new women inmates, and um, they were forced to house women prisoners in places including remodeled hospitals, abandoned training schools, and converted motels. So it seems like the criminal justice system has struggled with how to deal with this influx of female prisoners. Particularly when you look at why the women are coming in, that's why we're trying to look at the motives behind it. Um, let's say a woman comes in having, unfortunately, very sadly, killed a child because of something like postpartum depression. They're going to need different sort of programs while they're in prison than a man might who just stole money to become richer. And going back to what we were talking about with women in the history of abuse, uh, we found that about 20% of women who end up in jails and prisons have been um, on medications for some kind of emotional disorder. So I feel like um, we don't necessarily want those women to be treated any differently in sentencing, but it would be nice if there are more programs available to them once they are sentenced to get a life back on track. So Molly, all of this talk, though, about you know most emotional and physical and sexual abuse and all of these factors that are particularly related to female inmates um is this just a reformulation of the old argument that women criminals are just deviants i mean are we really just making excuses for the crimes that women are committing saying like oh well she she just stole the $200 so that she could buy her kids clothes whereas you know oh well he stole it so that he could buy himself a new jacket Right. I mean, I do. That was what was sort of worrying to me when we were preparing this is that all these people trying to come up with theories as to why women do commit crimes are almost explaining away the fact that a woman committed a crime. Yeah. And I think it's also ignoring the similar social backgrounds that are leading people, men and women, into crime that I mentioned earlier. I mean, if you go down to the community level, there are problems, obviously, in the educational system, um, obviously, in job opportunities and all those different factors from childhood 
that are going to put people out on the streets and push to the point of having to commit a crime. But I think that when anyone commits a crime, we look for a reason why, mm-hmm. right? And so we are more sympathetic when it's something like, oh, she couldn't feed her children, as opposed to, oh, he was the CEO and just wanted another lake house. Um, but it's when we can't find a motive that it's most chilling, I think, because we just can't relate. We want to relate with these people somehow. And Molly, when we talk about, you know, relating with criminals, the experience of criminals and kind of getting inside that criminal mind, um, I think one interesting case study to look at is sort of our fascination with the um, woman portrayed in the movie Monster. Right. Aileen Warnos. Yes. So like you mentioned, she had um, a, a sad background. By the time she was in high school, she was working as a prostitute. Um, she'd been married and divorced and in jail for Grand Theft Auto. Um, and so then she meets Tyria Moore. I may not be pronouncing the name right, but uh, this was the character Christina Ricci's character played in that movie. And so Warnos was supporting them by working as a prostitute. And by the way, side note, we read a lot about um, whether prostitution could explain spikes in female crimes and how much it was still a male-dominated business because mm-hmm. they were the ones who were getting caught usually were working for the man. Yeah. So interesting. By the man, I mean a pimp. Yes. So anyway... Back to the case of case of monster. And so one night, um, she was out on a job, and the her client tried to rape her, and she ended up shooting him three times and killed him. And in that case, you know, you might be able to say, well, obviously it's self defense. Mm-hmm. A woman is, you know, possibly going to be raped. She's got to do something to protect herself. And I think cases like that do happen. But then things kind of spiral out of control, right? And you know, the movie. I've seen the movie and, you know, you kind of are are torn between places where she really does feel threatened and places where she just wants to kill someone. Yeah, you kind of want to sympathize with her. But then at a point you're like, wait, wait, you're a just minute. killing people now. Hold on a second. So she got a lot of attention during her case because, as Mental Floss put it, she was always her own worst enemy. Shrieking at the assistant state attorney general, I hope your wife and children get raped. And basically, they were able to pin the crimes on her by getting her girlfriend to um, confess in a phone a phone phone tape. Now, on the flip side of that, we have um, a criminal who really hasn't been very prominent in popular culture. And it might just be because she is very cold-blooded. When you think about a cold-blooded criminal, the case of Jane Toppin really exemplifies that, in my opinion. Um, I don't know. She had kind of a sad childhood. I mean, that's the thing. Are we making excuses for sad childhoods? Well, her mother died and left her with a drunken, violent father. Yes. And that goes back once again, community, social backgrounds, what's going on on that level, where are the roots? Um, But anyway, Jane Toppin has this rough, rough and tumble childhood. And um, she ends up kind of faking her way into um, working as a nurse, and she's very fascinated with uh, this mixture of atropine and morphine so that she could poison patients without being caught because it's uh, some, something to do with being able to dilate their eyes would make it look like they just died from morphine. And so she would go in and poison all of these people and would reportedly climb into bed with them as they were dying and get a certain erotic rush from the whole thing. Yeah, she would kill just dozens of them at night when she was on the shift. And the time period we're talking about is turn of the century. And so she just, she might be the woman who's killed the most. Um, they only got her to confess to 11 killings 
but the book American Murder posits it might be closer to hundreds. And she was only caught because she went on vacation with this family and started killing them all right there in the vacation home, which led to some suspicion. Yeah, she killed uh, the husband, wife, and the two married daughters, and then the husband of one of the um, murdered daughters was like, wait a minute, what's old Jane doing? (laughs) But I think that our reaction to this case shows how quickly we can turn, because at first I was like, oh, you know, sad childhood, alienation, and then when you read that killing people gave her this sexual rush, then you're like, Whoa. Something else is going I on. I can't relate to that. Yeah. So it's it's weird how we flip on them. Emily, I think that that right there is one of the reasons why it is hard to answer the question of whether or not the criminal justice system should treat men and women differently. Because we still have these societal ideas about, you know, women's behavior and men's behavior. But at the end of the day, they are committing different types of crimes and there are different factors um in their personal lives, such as the emotional and physical abuse, sexual abuse, and um, the very fact of mothers in prison, too. Right, because it just continues a vicious cycle where a child grows up in very, you know, in awful conditions and might grow up to a life of crime themselves. Yeah, so I think that we have to leave this question unanswered. Okay, Kristen, so we're not going to close the female gender gap with crime, but let's go ahead and close out this podcast with some with some lighter Lighter notes, listener mail. Listener mail. How about some hair mail? Hair mail. Oh, that's cute. Our first email is from Heather, who writes that she is a feminist with female pattern alopecia. She writes, I am 29 years old and a student at the University of Akron. I started to lose my hair very slowly several years ago, but didn't really pay attention until the hair loss was so profound that I couldn't come over to hide the thinness anymore. I tried wearing wigs, but they were very uncomfortable. They're hot and scratchy, and even the expensive ones feel like a moist basket hybrid at the end of the day. Synthetic fibers are tricky because they can literally melt on your head if they get hot, and real human hair is a pain because of the frizz factor and high maintenance required. So after a year of trying to hide under a wig, I came to the conclusion that I'd rather shave my head and be free. I'm incredibly comfortable now. I feel much more confident bald than I ever did trying to hide my condition. I'm a feminist, and I felt like a disingenuous traitor by clinging to somewhat rigid, ridiculously unnatural, and oppressive beauty norms under my wig. It wasn't my hair, and I was always afraid that someone would figure that out. So I wasn't physically comfortable, confident, or ethically satisfied until I shaved my hair completely. I walk taller and feel like I finally own my look. I also know now that my hair, or lack thereof, reflects my convictions. I am proud to be strong enough to shed my locks and stand on my merit and not just my good looks. Thanks, Heather, for writing in. And as always, if you guys have any questions or comments, Molly and I love to hear from you guys. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And during the week, if you want to see what Molly and I are writing, you should head over to our blog. It's called How To Stuff. And as always, if you want to learn more about anything that's on your mind, any old thing at all, just head on over to HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive, and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC.